This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. My name is Jake Seward, and I run corporate communications here at Goldman Sachs. Today, we're going to talk about music. After decades of declining album sales, streaming is changing the game for music and putting the industry back on a path to growth. Lisa Yang from Goldman Sachs Research, one of my guests today, sees streaming helping to double music revenues to over $100 billion by 2030, spreading benefits to artists and labels alike. She's joined by Mark Geiger, worldwide head of music for William Morris Endeavor, and Patrick Spence, the CEO of Sonos, to discuss the trends with two people who live it every day. Lisa, Mark, Patrick, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So, Lisa, streaming was responsible for a lot of the value destruction we saw over the last couple decades. What's changed now, and why is streaming particularly going to be the primary growth driver? As we all know, the music industry has been through tremendous technological changes. And the first digital revolution, as we know it, which brought in piracy and unbundling, had decimated the market and almost left it for dead by many commentators. But recently, we're seeing actually the rise of a new digital revolution, the second one, which is led by the rise of streaming services. That's giving the industry a new life and returning it back to growth. If you think about 2015, was the first year where the recorded music market grew again since 1998. And 2016 saw that growth accelerate. Global recorded music growth was about 6%, and in the US alone it was 11%. And I think this is only the beginning. So why is streaming such a game changer? Firstly, I think subscription streaming in particular creates new revenue pool which are a lot more profitable and sustainable for the rights holders and it helps address in particular the consumers who are willing to pay for better quality for convenience and for greater choice in 2016 we had about 112 million paying subscribers but that's still only three percent of the global smartphone population so we think there's tremendous opportunity for that to grow and in our forecast when we have about 100 billion of revenue by 2030 we incorporate about nine percent penetration by then which i still think could be conservative secondly Streaming also helps address the consumers who are not willing to pay or who can't afford to pay through the advertising funded tiers. And I think that could also add a couple of billion dollars to the industry in the years to come. And thirdly, streaming benefits from a growing and captive audience that is the Gen Z, the millennials. If you think about the Spotify user base, almost 80% of the users come from those two groups and they will be driving the growth of streaming going forward. And I will add also to that, that streaming helps penetrate the developing world where you actually see you know, a lot of mobile first population and you're starting to see new legitimized business model emerging, which are a lot more profitable for rights holders. China today is still smaller than Sweden in terms of the size of the music market. And I think that has to change. In absolute terms. In absolute terms. Yep. Exactly. So to sum it up, I think streaming just create a lot more sustainable, profitable revenue stream for the rights holders. And that should drive, you know, doubling of the market for music over the next 15 years. So, Mark, how do artists view streaming? Obviously, there's no unified voice, but... Are they seeing the value creation that Lisa's describing? Oh, yeah. There's two things Lisa didn't say, but she referenced. One is her projections may be conservative, right? 9% of the mobile Mm. market for this kind of service might be very low. Hard to say. 
Two, the reason for all this disruption and mayhem in the music industry was choices that were made by the copyright owners before the millennium. When Napster was around, the copyright owners tried to protect an old model, and that created probably 15 years of hell for the record business and the publishers. Had they made a different choice back then, who knows where we would be now. Artists never knew that much about how the business worked. They just knew they didn't get enough of the money and they would complain along the way. But really, they need an infrastructure to market, promote, and spread their music around the world. There's more choices to use other kinds of systems today. But they see the world as, who will help me get my music to the masses, and then how do I monetize it? And for 15 years, artists were complaining because the labels were complaining. So they would go in to try and get marketed and promoted, and everybody would say, we have no money, we're going broke, we're in trouble, we can't spend on this. And then their trip to Europe to tour was effectively cut, or to publicist. Now... Some of them, and it's declining or griping, why aren't I making more money from recording? I'm reading now on the press how big the streaming market is. It's not that big yet, but it's mm. on its way. But what they're sensing is that the train's back on the right track. And so when they're about to release music or they're going to start a campaign, the environment around them isn't doom and gloom. It's let's go, let's work more streaming, go visit Spotify, go visit Apple Music, hey, go to this radio thing. Yes, we will send you to an award show. We will put you on tour. They're just feeling the environment's better. So that would be my answer. Right. Some artists have been a little reluctant about streaming, particularly on the ad-funded tier. And they're trying different ways and experimenting. And how do you see that playing out over time? That's already changed. In the beginning of the Internet, there was a exclusive period. Time magazine signed up exclusive for AOL back in the day. That lasted two to three years. So there was an exclusive period, title artists, and I'm going to do an exclusive for Apple Music. That's already ending. Universal right. said none of this. Ad-supported people are still upset about YouTube's payout rates, but they're paying billions of dollars. And when you remind them that radio never paid and MTV didn't pay, but Pandora pays, and other interactive services that are lean back pay, and YouTube pays, they go quiet. They're all waiting for the effective CPM rate to go up and the rate to get a little more rationalized. Everybody wants more money. Okay? The truth is, all of these markets are tied to things artists don't understand. Effective CPM rate. So when you're run of sight on YouTube and you're two bucks a CPM, you're only going to get so much back, even though music videos are streamed a quarter of the time on YouTube. And on a subscription basis, scale of subscribers. They still get 70% of the revenue. It's revenue of how big is the pot. Right. So I think in general, artists are a little bit confused about where the money goes. They were screaming, hey, I'm not getting paid, I'm not getting paid. Now they're sort of shutting up and the money's starting to come in and the articles are being written about $100 million checks here and $1 billion checks there and how much so-and-so's making on streaming. And it's all fueling the rest of the market. So I think what you'll find is a straight-line decline of complaints that mirrors the straight-line increase of growth. And you're coming out of a period where people had total disrupted finances and didn't see it. So I think all of this noise starts to go away. You had five music industry people from David Byrne, David Lowry, others who would point out problems in the marketplace, whether it's rights they weren't getting paid for, what have you. Natural system, once it's working, cleans up all this stuff. They can't clean it up in one day or one week, but over time they plug all the holes and they create systems, and the systems are still being built. I mean, this is massive financial reengineering. I tell people it's similar to what happened in the banking industry, going from 
bank tellers through to ATMs, then into e-banking. That was massive infrastructure that consumers didn't see that got rebuilt. That's happening in the music industry now. Yeah. And artists don't know that. So you alluded to it just back up, but you said everyone wants more money. Um, obviously, for that, the pie has to get bigger. And you said Lisa's projections may be a little conservative. Where do you see the biggest potentials for an upside surprise? There's two areas. Number one is subscription revenue. So what we all know today is Apple Music, is Spotify, as YouTube Red, some level of Amazon Prime. That's just going to continue to grow in a straight line. Part two is they're going to pair up at the dance. So whether Netflix buys Spotify or Apple TV and Apple Music merge, you see Google Play and Amazon Prime being a bundled service. All of this is going to continue to grow. That's one. Two is you're going to have growth of the CPM. So as YouTube evolves their model and now they're ad-supported, let's see what happens when Facebook gets into the music business. As advertisers get more sophisticated, as it gets more targeted and goes from $2 to $8 or $2 to $12 in effective CPM, you're probably a couple billion dollars. I projected 10 out of advertising. Oh, seven. Okay, so we're close. But <laughs> 7 or $10 billion is effectively half of the recorded music industry from three years ago. And that's just ad-supported services. So if you add that to physical, to artist channels, and then the growth in subscription, you can blow by $100 billion probably easy. And then you take the rest of a report, which is merchandise, touring, and what have you, and that turns into $50 billion. So you could have conceivably an ecosystem between $150 and $250 billion in the music economy. And right now we are probably around 50-ish. So that's what I think you're dealing with. That should quiet some of the noise, no pun intended. Patrick, talk about the listener experience. How is it changing with streaming, and how have you designed your business strategy around the rise of streaming? Well, it really started with the convenience of the mobile phone. GSMA last week announced that there are now 5 billion unique mobile subscribers worldwide. All of those people have a portable music device in their hands. And that's an enormous opportunity. And when you think about the kind of revenue numbers we're talking about, it is not that hard to see your way to that level, given how many people are out there in the addressable market. And I really think it is the convenience and simplicity that is brought together. And I think all these things are reinforcing. So one of the things that always gets missed as part of the conversation is that live music has been growing. And I think a big part of that is people discovering on streaming and reinforcing and YouTube often gets a bad name, but people are discovering music, able to access it. All of this stuff works in a system. And if you look at that overall ecosystem, streaming has really helped in terms of energizing the system so that more people are discovering great music, new bands, they're going to see them live and there's more dollars out there than ever before what people have to get their heads around is it's not monetizing the exact same way. So I don't get paid the same way necessarily as an artist or a label, but at the end of the day, I get paid. So maybe I don't get paid for every play, but I ultimately get paid at a concert or in some other way because they're buying merchandise. And so I think people just have to be open to that realization. But really it comes down to if you're opening Spotify or Pandora on your mobile phone, it is so simple in terms of being able to access some great music and learn about new music. Spotify has done a tremendous job with Discover Weekly and Release Radar. Apple Music's trying to do some similar things. And so helping introduce people to music that they're going to enjoy is big. And then, you know, we bring it into the home. So we've rode the back of that streaming wave to really be able to make it easy to bring that experience into the home. You see people doing it now for cars as well. And so that's just reinforcing the system even more so that you're getting it in every place. And the key in all of this is making it really easy to consume the music and find great new music. 
you're selling a product, a, a physical product, but obviously the core of that product is software that Absolutely. needs to be updated. Yeah, I mean, we, at the end of the day, are a systems company in the sense that we combine software, hardware, services, everything together to create a great experience. The networking in your home is a very complex system, which music won't naturally be reliable over, but we do a lot of work to make sure that it's something that's going to be easy to play on. As we think about the future, we say Sonos always gets better over time because we're doing new software updates all the time that make the experience better. That's what consumers expect. In this day and age, they expect it to be easy, something we call time to music. So how quickly can you get that music playing? You know, you only want a couple clicks and you want something great playing. And then if you want to go deeper, you need to be able to go deeper. So we've been innovating and evolving with all the streaming services. We work very closely with all of them to see what's coming up next and what consumers need. Mark, streaming's one piece of the puzzle, obviously, and it's a big piece of the puzzle. You alluded to the broader economy around music. Where do you see the greatest opportunities to boost revenue for emerging and established artists? One is there's new actual platforms that artists didn't used to spend time on. Take all of the world of Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the social platforms. They're also monetizable. They're also audience building and their audience identification and it's audience messaging. Because if you post something on your Twitter or your Instagram, X amount of people are going to see it. And some of the artists have really massive following. Selena Gomez may be number one on the entire internet as an example for a social following. Beyonce, they wrote an article where they said every time she posts something on her Instagram, it's worth $400,000 cash. Every time. Just accretive to the brand. Because of the amount of impressions times some effective CPM rate because right. she has that many yep. followers. Yep. So I think if you just go, what's different today? Okay, number one, you can monetize social. You can build up a social audience. It becomes a marketing channel. It's a monetization channel. You can promote other things. It didn't exist a while back. So that's an area, and you're in control of it. Then you have the digital music services that we all spend a lot of time talking about, the Spotify through to Pandora to Apple Music. And those are new MTVs and radio for them. So spending time visiting, promoting, cultivating audiences on those platforms is another area that artists spend time and it directly reflects how much money they make and how big their audience is. Then you go off-piece. You still have the old radio. You still have TV talk shows, MTV, et cetera, that you still have to promote. By the way, press, X amount of interviews, local press. That didn't go away. So you just added to all the places that an artist has to work. Then you have the massive explosion in globalization due to these platforms and services. Most artists didn't have a music business in China, India, South America, et cetera, et cetera. Patrick's from Canada. Half the artists didn't get released in Canada because the Canadian record companies didn't think they would work. And the opposite way... If you were born in Canada and you migrated to the U.S., 90% of the records didn't get licensed and released here from Canadian artists. And that market, That right? friction's just totally that friction gone. friction is gone, yeah. so the choice is there. But what happens is all of the audiences get lit up because the music's available. So I run a company that makes a lot of its money in the ticket sales and touring worldwide. That business has grown every year, probably since 98 nonstop because people were getting more music and more music fuels more ancillaries. It's that simple. When you have cultures that are really hungry because they were starved for music and they didn't get those artists that they had seen, read about, but the access to their catalogs were hard to come by. And all of a sudden, boom, it comes in and you can get everything. Those consumers 
tend to dig into their pockets, spend a lot, and experience music. And the beauty of what happens, and this isn't talked about that much, but when you put music next to the other entertainment choices, and they're all in a friction-free system, music's out front. So music's the most enjoyed of all of the mediums that we enjoy, video games. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of them. They're all great, right? right. But if you head-to-head -head race, music's winning. So It's when the you, truly global product. Global and, and ageless. Ageless, yeah. And I'm not talking about Cuts across so, demographics, you got it. countries. And it was starved. As, I think movies and TV were starved, too. I just came back from South America. U.S. television in South America is massive. And I don't think people know it because they talk about Chinese movies, right, and how big the movie. But um, this is true for music, and I think you're going to find that the globalization effect on the music economy is always understated because I think the network effect globally is usually understated. So, Mark and Patrick, there's a lot of new players in this industry, and you've alluded to them. How do you navigate the ever-shifting nature of the industry? And maybe we start with you, Patrick. Yeah, I think it's exciting that there's so many new companies that get involved and help bring energy to it. I think about our space in home audio. There weren't a lot of innovative new things happening 10 years ago. And it got a little bit stale in terms of the way you would listen to music at home. And so we went and completely disrupted that and made it way easier to be able to actually consume music in your home and just better. And I think that's what each of these companies have helped do in their own ways. Sometimes there's business models around it, which people want to invest in. Sometimes people are still trying to figure it out as they go through it. But ultimately, there's a lot of energy around it because it is music and music is such a human passionate thing that people want to be involved in. And I think the other thing about music, you know, as we think about the other kind of formats that are out there, other entertainment too, is that the nice thing about music is that it complements what you're doing as opposed to demanding your attention. So you don't stay necessarily fixated on it. We did a study last year with Apple Music that showed that everything in your home is better with music. And we actually proved that as we went through. You have it playing at a dinner party and you have it playing all these times. But I think the reality is you're going to continue to see innovation. You're going to continue to see new companies come in because it is music. And it's always something where there's a lot of young people getting involved and really starting to create new music. There is youthful energy around music all the time. And so it's interesting because you see right now with different streaming services and there's a few big ones that are forming, but I'm a big believer that there'll be gaps that other people see that will go and try to exploit with niche services or new services, or they'll see some other way to provide a new service using AI or something like that. That'll provide a new experience that people will then jump on as well. So, Mark, same question for you. It used to be kind of simple in the old days. You got a contract with a label and you toured and they promoted your music. It's believe a little it more not, complicated. Believe it or not, that's still happening. <laughs> <laughs> it is more complicated because, as I said, if you're an artist, you have to work all those social platforms. Right. You have to work the new Spotify's and Apple Music. Your past question was really good. Every chapter of this evolution has some stories. Right now we're in the... Let's see what happens to Pandora and SoundCloud, part of the story. Today, Pandora's in trouble, SoundCloud's in trouble. They were seen as giants in their own way if we were here a year or two ago, and we would talk about it. And Google and Amazon and Facebook are seen as threats. In fact, Tesla rumored that they were going to have their own music service. Yep. So the first thing I would advise the audience is watch this and stay tuned. We are not at a final point. We're in the... First or second inning, too much time was spent in the pregame. Okay, 20 yeah. years in the pregame, so if I were going to analogize this. So now a lot of people are on the field. Some aren't even up on the field yet, and some are going away. We're barely sniffing bundled services. 
in this Goldman Sachs report, besides it being bullish on the overall economy, one of the things that you have to read into it to really see is the companies that are here today and their current strategies may have nothing to do or very little to do with how we interact with music 10 years from now. Patrick has to deal with voice coming into the world right now at Sonos. People are getting used to speaking to some hardware device and it answering you back and doing something. So he's got something to navigate. Even though Sonos is a fairly mature company that does great and brings a lot of value to people, it's another challenge. So I don't think any CEO and staff in the music or overall media game is safe. I think they have to follow what the Google guys are doing, what Bezos is doing, and continually innovate. And this marketplace is fascinating and fun because it's great to grow, but in some ways it's more fun to watch the innovation path. And that's where we're going to be for the next 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. Well, yeah. and, and even artists innovating. Oh, I sure. mean, if you think about it now, we're such an attention-based economy, and you watch artists now not releasing an album every two years, but rather a mixtape here, you know, and a new track here, and they're featured on another one. They've been innovating, and the ones that are most popular, most successful today, are the ones that are trying new things. They're to actually keep the biggest attention. innovators. In exactly. Some ways. exactly. You know, the way in which yep. Beyonce markets an album, yep. or the way in which Kanye lets us watch the or, life of Pablo yep. get constructed, or the yeah. way a YouTuber understands that frequency and frequency of posting amount of songs, amount of social activity versus Bob Seger, who will post once or twice around a tour or an album, you have a YouTuber or a digital artist who's posting five times a day. Then in terms of the video content, making a piece of art for the users or letting Mm. them into what you are doing. The whole point of connectivity with artists is also going through a massive change. The whole point of expression of an artist is going through change, to Patrick's point. So I think you have multiple systems changing at the same time, including within the art. And I think some of the most successful artists are releasing infinite palette of tracks, not tied to any rhythm, any release schedule, any formats, and that's shifting the market. So I think you have a lot of moving pieces. Lisa, in the first part of your report on the industry, Music in the Air, you lay out the bull case for the industry and how streaming can really help turbocharge growth here. You put out a second report called Paint It Black, which lays out some of the risks. Walk us through those risks. I think one obvious risk is inherent to the consumer is that despite the far better convenience of streaming services, far better quality, people still don't want to pay because there's still so many free options available out there, like on, on YouTube, obviously illegal downloading and so on. That's clearly not the base case here, I think, in the, in the room, but that's a risk. I think, secondly, the other risk is inherent to the industry itself in terms of the relationship between the platforms and the labels, which have been an issue in the past. And just to give you a couple of examples, what we don't want to see is any irrational behavior, for instance, from the streaming services and try to sign up artists exclusively and disintimidate the labels, because I think that will trigger retaliation from the labels, who will then perhaps withdraw their catalog and start to damage the consumer experience because you don't have all the catalog available on one streaming service. Another example is streaming services also competing for exclusivity of artists, which we saw actually last year. But a lot of industry people we talked to realize that this is bad for user experience. Self-destructive. Exactly. And it's going to lead to to more piracy in the future. 
And I think finally, it's also the responsibilities of the label to make sure that the competitive landscape among the platforms remains sustainable. Because you have on one hand the pure streaming players, which Mark has alluded to earlier, which are not profitable at the moment. And those guys are competing against those tech giants who are obviously deep pocketed. So it's not the same kind of level playing field. So I think the labels, it's their responsibility as well to make sure that they can protect the interest of those pure streaming players rather than trying to just pursue their short-term interests and just go with the platform that offers them the better terms. But we do assume some form of collaboration, cooperation between the various industry players. And we think the labels have learned the lessons of the past and will want to avoid the formation of a new monopoly in distribution. So I'm going to call her report Paint It Gray, because I think even Lisa, when she's talking about it, knows that a lot <laughs> she of these... doesn't sound that negative, actually. That, no. That's right. <laughs> that knows that a lot of these risks are either in the past or that both labels and front end are chasing the money. This is one of those rare cases where a consumer picks up value, right, $10 a month. There's a moment five years ago we were sitting here where the $10 a month was actually questioned. People would be paying $12 for one album. Oh, and I would say to record company presidents, hey, you got two choices to eat in a restaurant. You buy an a la carte menu for 12 bucks, or you can eat there for a month for 10 bucks. You pick. And they were flummoxed because they knew which was better for the consumer. They just didn't believe it could scale big enough for them to get paid. I think this is one where the front ends win, front ends being Spotify's and those platforms, where the consumers win and the copyright holders win. And that doesn't happen that often. And so when Lisa's talking about some of the negatives, it's hard to actually understand that all the interests are lined up. Mm. Okay, Now, there's going to be some friction still, but it's mostly negotiation friction. People smell the money now. People were really confused. They didn't believe the streaming model was going to generate the money. Now they're all, you know, I say they're hooked on it, and it's going to be hard to get off. So there's only so much fighting they're going to do because they don't want to kill themselves and the golden goose at the same time. So, Patrick, look ahead. Five years, 30 yeah. years, what's the industry going to look like? What's the experience going to be like for consumers and artists? Oh, it's going to be awesome. I think you're going to see artists that are rapidly releasing new tracks and maybe trying things and experimenting, you know, on a really frequent basis. I think what we'll see is labels and streaming services that allow the artists to get even more creative with how they're doing it, where they're doing it. Maybe they're live streaming things from live events. Maybe we are as well able to attend all of these great live events using VR and having AR experiences on site as well. So I think we'll be doing a lot of things to enhance that user experience and bring ourselves to the places where our favorite artists are performing and get that feel that you get in live music as well, which will provide more opportunity and help reinforce it. So certainly for me, I think this billion subscriber mark is very achievable. And I think that is something that will drive music as well across homes, in cars, all throughout the world, and just be a great thing to keep something that has been a huge part of humanity going for many, many years to come. Mark, you're nodding your head. Do you agree? Anything to add? No, other than there's another couple billion people that will get a different kind of music experience through ad-supported leanback services. And you're going to have, this sounds crazy utopian, but I think if somebody had said 15 years ago, we came to this podcast, we said, okay, everybody you know will shop in their underwear in bed and buy anything they want. And it'll get to your house and you will have zero worry about putting your credit card on the internet or anything. 
And that thing turned up to Amazon. You thought, okay, there's almost a billion customers or whatever. Or they would check their social media how many times a day, depending. And their whole life would change in terms of connectivity with their network and photos. Or their, You wouldn't believe it. And I think what Patrick's saying is music's going to get to that level in society, where it's that baked into our lives. And I believe he's totally right. Lisa, any final thoughts on the future of the industry? No, I think clearly we all agree that it's like a significant opportunities ahead, although we could disagree a bit of the number, but it's clearly trending above like 100 billion mark. I think all the players across the value chain just have to evolve and you know, adapt to the ever-changing consumer behavior and technological innovation, and those will be the winners of tomorrow. All right. Thank you all for joining us. Lisa, Mark, Patrick, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on June 27, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.